Hello. Welcome to the Anthill podcast from The Conversation. I'm Annabelle Bly. The regular listeners among you may have noticed that we've had a little break in our usual monthly schedule. That's because we've been hard at work creating a new series all about India and what you need to know to understand what's at stake in India's upcoming national elections. We'll be taking an in-depth look at the world's largest democracy. 900 million voters will be going to the polls in April and May in an enormous democratic exercise that takes over a month. It has the world's fastest growing economy. It has a strongman populist leader up for re-election. Fake news stories are fueling violence against the country's minorities. And a simmering conflict with Pakistan over Kashmir recently escalated into a dangerous confrontation. We'll be speaking to academic experts who research India to find out about all these issues and more. If you've got any tips or questions you want answered relating to India in the upcoming elections, do shoot us an email on podcast at theconversation.com. Otherwise, watch this space and subscribe to The Anthill if you haven't already. The first episode will drop on the 9th of April. In the meantime, we've got an old favourite episode for you. It's all about visions of the future. Right now, at least in the UK, amid the twists and turns of the Brexit process, it's hard to know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone 10 years from now. But predicting the future is something thinkers have tried to do for generations, with varying degrees of success. Where are all the flying cars, for example? And why aren't we all working just 15 hours a week? Something the economist John Maynard Keynes predicted in 1930. In fact, one field where the futurologists seem to keep getting their predictions wrong is the world of work. I set out to investigate why we never got this future that we were promised. In the post-Second World War period, what we see is an enormous amount of optimism about the possibilities of what technology and the state could achieve. One of the manifestations of this, I think, is something like the space program. And also that there's a kind of a collective sense of harnessing technology for the benefit of all mankind. That's Martin Parker, Professor of Culture and Organisation at the University of Leicester. I spoke to him about why we don't seem to be any closer to this shiny future than we were in the 1950s. In fact, the average work week today in developed countries is still 30 hours. And technology has meant many people now work round the clock thanks to smartphones and email. Martin thinks that one of the main problems is gains won by technology are not being shared out evenly. You know, you need to be kind of clear that technology impacts on societies in very uneven, unequal ways. So even in relatively advanced economies like the UK and America, effectively what we see is huge technological gains within certain sectors, but those sectors themselves are effectively using those gains in order to increase the surplus to shareholders or the, uh, or to narrow the margins they're operating on and so on. Um, let's take you know, banking, for example. Now, it's fairly clear that the automation of back-office functions, you know, it's a fairly standard computing, really, for us nowadays, has allowed banks to do a lot of things with computers that used to be done by clerks, you know, people sitting at desks, manually writing in ledgers and so on. 
But that doesn't mean that the hours this has freed up is then distributed around the rest of society. Quite the contrary. It's meant that banks can operate on perhaps less employees than they used to and perhaps narrower margins than they used to. But there's no evidence that the kind of surplus thereby generated is, is therefore shared. And in part, I think that's because ideas about the golden age of leisure seem to be predicated on the idea that there would be an attempt to spread the surplus time around. In practice, of course, the automation of individual jobs within individual organisations might be useful for that organisation in terms of generating surplus. But there's no state policy that then allows those free hours to be spread. The way that Martin Parker sees it, the dystopian sci-fi predictions of the future were far more accurate than the utopian ones. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a faith in the idea of technocratic state planning, which has now been replaced by a belief in the market and individual agency. The result has been that, instead of a strong state policy to redistribute time and wealth, we got big corporations that control everything, and their sole aim is to maximise their profits. I mean, say if we take a lot of classic science fiction movies from the 1970s, like Alien and Robocop and Blade Runner and so on, at the heart of all of those plots and those films are corporations, and the corporations are effectively acting as states. Uh, they're you know, dominating the public sphere and employing whatever Machiavellian techniques they need to in order to get their, get their way. And there's a kind of schizophrenia here, really, between the sort of the policymakers in the post-war era who appeared to be thinking that the golden age of work was around the corner, and many of the science fiction writers who instead we're seeing a kind of a sort of quasi-fascist corporate domination as being our future. For Martin, a happy working future depends on putting greater control into the hands of the people. Only then will the gains from technology be shared more widely. For me, the, the key issue in most of these debates actually gets back to ownership. So we can talk about a whole variety of different sorts of futures of work and organisation and markets and so on. But unless we get down to the nitty gritty of who actually owns and benefits from different forms of organising, I think a lot of it is really hot air. If we take the example of cooperatives, the key thing about cooperatives is that they are collectively owned. In fact, Martin sees cooperatives as the hope for the future of not just work, but a healthy society in general. Their benefits include higher levels of employee satisfaction and pay, better mental health and also less time taken off sick. By their democratic nature, co-ops are smaller than the big multinational companies we are used to today. They're also a lot more wedded to their local communities. If we really want to think about issues about the quality of life and the future of work, we really need to regard these as being part of the sustainability agenda in the broadest sense. And that's going to require... Um, much more emphasis on localism, largely in order to ensure that uh, we're not kicking out so much carbon by moving things around the world. But also, I think, much more of an emphasis on smaller organisations, largely because if we want to generate an economy that's broadly fairer and also that is less damaging to the environment, we need to move towards a much more locally-based form of economy, which essentially focuses on local goods rather than some sort of abstract idea of economic progress as measured by GDP. 
I put it to Martin that localism sounded a bit too small-minded and backward rather than forward-thinking. But he's adamant that he's not proposing a return to some nostalgic past. Actually, it's about recognising that the way society is organised right now inflicts too much damage on the planet and on us. We need to make something of a distinction here, I think, don't we, between the kind of globalisation of things and the globalisation of people. So in terms of you know, a diagnosis about the future of the economy of work, we clearly need to reduce our carbon emissions. And that effectively means we can't be moving stuff around the world in the way that we do currently. That seems to me a no-brainer. But that's not the same as saying that we can't imagine a future of the globalisation of people. I think it's possible to imagine a kind of localist, cosmopolitan order, one that's focused on uh, the reduction of carbon emissions, but that doesn't necessarily turn us into a kind of a series of feudal villages in which we defend our butcher and our baker and our candlestick maker and so on. I don't think that's a necessary corollary of localization. So whether that future is local or global, or a mix of the two, Many people are afraid of technology making their jobs obsolete and destroying their livelihoods. Whether it's scanning our own shopping at the supermarket or making our own bank transfers, automation is becoming increasingly commonplace. One study by the University of Oxford's Martin School estimates that nearly 50% of jobs in the US are susceptible to computerization over the next two decades. So should we fear the rise of the machines? Well, yes and no, says Ursula Hughes. She's a professor of labour and globalisation at the University of Hertfordshire. And she's been in the game of researching the future of work for a while now. According to her, it's an age-old fear. I, I think there's a particular kind of blinkered vision that sees the future of work as only being about what is in the existing economy and projecting from that and not understanding where new kinds of commodities come from. Um, but before going into that argument, I think it's quite interesting to look at the cycle because I've now seen it, I think, probably go around at least three, if not four times. Uh, I'm old enough for that. It's an inescapable fact that technology destroys jobs, but it also creates new ones in ways that are hard to imagine. The existing people see the loss of the existing jobs because they tend to be very visible in the traditional areas where industries traditionally were, like Rust Belt towns, you know, like Detroit or Sheffield or, you know, wherever. And you see all these factory jobs disappearing or, you know, in the, probably in the 19th century jobs to do with looking after horses and coaching towns all disappeared. So, you know, if you were an unemployed stable hand in the early 20th century thinking, oh, my God... <laughs> You know, the motor car is going to destroy my job. You you can't sort of visualise all the jobs that are going to be created in Detroit or, or Birmingham, you know, and the whole new auto industry that's going to be created and all the people making components for it and all the people building roads and all the petrol stations and all the jobs in the oil industry that are required to feed the petrol stations. So what are the new fields where jobs are being created at the moment? Ursula identifies four. One of them is biology. It's like the DNA of plants, you know, genetic engineering, whole industries based on 
just aspects of nature, if you like, for new drugs and new plants and new agribusiness commodities and so on. That's number one. Number two is art and culture. This whole sweeping of activities into the sort of scope of big multinational companies that used to be done in little local service industries. And the third one is the commodification of public services, which is huge. That's the privatisation of things like healthcare and schools. Fourth on her list is... The commodification of sociality itself. The growth of social media. The way in which now all sorts of things that used to be done didn't involve spending any money at all. And now you need a mobile phone, you need a a Wi-Fi, you need cables and leads and an electricity supply just to be linked into something which is about remembering your grandmother's birthday. But it's been sucked in within the scope of the formal economy and it's what used to be outside the economy. There are hundreds of thousands of jobs connected with what I call the hidden housework of the internet. You know, content moderation, Google rating, lots and lots of jobs that nobody 20 years ago sitting down saying, oh, let's look what the effect of automation on jobs is going to be. Nobody would have predicted those jobs. Whether or not those jobs are good jobs is a different matter entirely. In fact... Ursula comments on a polarisation that's taken place between good jobs and bad ones. Especially as we heard from Martin Parker earlier, technology is often used to boost a company's profitability. So the well-organised jobs where the union is represented will be first in the firing line. You know, in the 70s, it was the skilled print workers, for instance, because they were incredibly well-paid and well-organised. So bang, suddenly overnight, there was a technology that meant any typist could do their job. Same with taxi drivers, actually. So workers are constantly having to reinvent themselves and reinvent new forms of organisation and try and fight back for some sort of security and decency. And But they do fight back. For those at the other end of the spectrum, that's the well-educated and the creative innovators, opportunities abound. To succeed in the competitive global economy, companies have to stay ahead. And to do that, they have to have the best workers and treat them well to stop them jumping ship to the competition. So what does the future of work actually look like? According to Ursula, it's pretty simple, really. What I think I can predict with some certainty is that we won't have a world where robots have taken all the jobs and we're all hanging around, whether, you know, there are two alternative versions, we're all hanging around in extreme poverty, or we're all hanging around in wonderful leisure. But uh, I don't think either version of that can happen. Apart from who's going to make the robots, who's going to maintain the robots, who's going to develop new robots, you know, where the raw material is going to come from. What business model would encourage a capitalist to go out and buy robots at the market price, which all the competitors can also buy them at, and make same identical products as all the competitors, which will then be distributed by robots in the same way as all the co- I mean, where's their profit margin? You know, you need human labour to add value. It's, um, it's as simple as that. So that's the economic reality. Yet, if history is anything to go by, it seems that every age will continue to fear the future and hope for a better one in equal measure. As Martin Parker puts it, Most people, when they're writing and thinking about the future, seem to find it hard to imagine a future which is more of the same. It's almost as if instead we have futures which are necessarily 
rather beautiful, rather attractive, or futures which are extremely gloomy. Martin Parker there, who, since we recorded that back in 2017, has moved to the University of Bristol. Movies, books and architecture have actually done a lot to influence the way we imagine and build the future. Next up, Anthill producer Gemma Ware spoke to a couple of academics who researched the history of how people have envisaged the future. The history of future cities is kind of the, the history of civilization itself. That's Nick Dunn. He's Professor of Urban Design at Lancaster University, where I'm also Executive Director of the Imagination Design Research Lab and Associate Director of the Institute for Social Futures. Nick says that people have been imagining what the future of their cities would look like ever since they've been living together in large groups. Perhaps the official um, starting point of this, if you like, is Thomas More's Utopia, which celebrated its 500th year anniversary last year in 2016. Utopia, which actually means no place in Greek, was a book about an imaginary island published in 1516 by More, an English political philosopher and counsellor to King Henry VIII. Despite More's own demise, his vision for the future really set the tone for centuries of futurologists and helped coin a word for their visions in the process, utopia. He speculated on entirely different ways of a working week, about how we might be organised. He, he thought about sort of how cities might feed themselves and, and be arranged and was really trying to offer a very different and alternative view. Moore's utopia was really trying to promote a more egalitarian and equal society than certainly existed in the time he was writing it. As the world began to industrialise in the 18th and 19th centuries and more people poured into urban centres, it was the city that became the focal point for imagining the future of society. You suddenly got quite dense environment for people to work, for people to live. You, of course, have the advent of artificial lighting, first with gas lamps and then electrical lighting. So now you've got a situation where a lot more things can happen in a city than had happened before. And they can also start to happen round the clock. So this really starts to inspire a lot of writers, painters, architects, artists and, and other designers to, to sort of think about the, the arrangements in which they are living, they're working, they're playing, what kind of transportation they might have, what kind of lifestyles they may have. It was at the end of the 19th century when science fiction began to flourish. Writers at this point are really beginning to think about the occupation of different planets, about how our own sort of natural environment might change, what the sort of mechanised processes of industrialisation might mean. So you start to get this articulation of ideas about super brains. We think perhaps about Fritz Lang's metropolis, the kind of the idea of the the, the city being controlled by, by the ultimate sort of intelligence. It's all mechanised. And lots and lots of other examples of, of artists, uh, writers uh, and other creatives really trying to take the sort of ingredients of, of the industrial city and usually amplify various elements of them so that they can play out some kind of fictional narrative that usually has some kind of apocalyptic or catastrophic element which brings the drama in in some way. We often like to separate these kind of visions of the future into two. 
utopian and dystopian, as if everything was either fantastically better than our current environment or something we must try and avoid at all costs. I asked Nick about his own favourite imagined futures from times past. First, we went dystopian. Um, well, actually, it's one that I only I only discovered for myself about sort of 10, 15 years ago. Um, but it's it's a novel by uh, Zamayatin, um, and it's called We. Uh, and it was written sort of 1920, 1921, Soviet writer, and it had to be smuggled out of Soviet Russia. So it was translated into lots of other languages. Um, and available elsewhere, but not in Russia till the late 80s. The story is uh, set in a sort of a glass-enclosed city, and all the inhabitants kind of live in a sort of cultural void. They're, they're just there to work, and they do have relationships with each other, but even though they are um, supposedly organic beings, they're very, very mechanistic relationships. So they don't have any passion. They don't have any creativity. And the story follows one of these uh, inhabitants and he kind of realizes he has a, a soul. So it's the whole sort of story, the narrative, it's all about being a big cry for individualism. Um, but what's so striking about it now is how contemporary it feels. I mean, I don't know whether that's to do with the way maybe we share ourselves on social media and perhaps some of the ways our contemporary cities look with lots of glass towers and things. But reading it now, uh, you know, in the early sort of part of the 21st century. It's remarkable, actually, how well it's aged. It really doesn't feel very dated at all. With its nihilistic depiction of an authoritarian future, it was a book that clearly influenced George Orwell, and there are echoes of it in his novel 1984, which is currently having a boom in sales in the early days of Donald Trump's presidency. But the future doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. Nick explains that as a student of architecture, he was drawn to the work of Archigram, a forward-thinking group of architects working in London in the 1960s. And particularly one member, uh, Ron Heron, who in 1964 proposed a kind of walking city. There's these wonderful um, collage drawings that comprise of these big, they look a bit like eggs, I suppose, but massive mobile robotic structures. And they, at least according to the drawings and, 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 and the writing that went with them, they kind of, they, they were sentient. They had their own intelligence. And the idea was that, I guess a bit like animals, they could kind of freely roam around the world, moving to wherever their resources or manufacturing abilities were needed. Uh, and they could also connect to each other. So they weren't just individual cities, but they could interrelate to form huge kind of walking metropolises. Uh, and then they could split up again when, when this was no longer necessary. It looks quite utopian, but of course, my utopia can be someone else's dystopia. And this is the very tricky thing about these two subjects, because it's, it's very, very personal and uh, rather subjective how you look at it. And as science fiction moved onto the screen, the division between utopia and dystopia always remained blurred. While it may feel like science fiction got more and more dystopian as the 20th century wore on, Amy Chambers, who researches science communication and screen studies at Newcastle University, told me that it's not quite that simple. I'm always a bit reluctant with this sort of like distinction between utopian and dystopian because both of them have sort of a an almost positive role to them in the sense that both utopias and dystopias look to the future and, and either suggest that we should avoid or go forward with a particular idea. They're both sort of um, an attempt to make things better. They have a positive function. 
Politics has a lot to do with it. Amy points to a classic early utopian world that made it onto the big screen in the 1930s. There's one that comes up a lot in texts and in sort of like the best utopian science fiction lists. Um, is a 1936 movie called Things to Come, which was an adaptation of a series of H.G. Wells stories, which is sort of a post-war story where they're, they're looking for a utopian future in that sort of interwar period. Um, and it's sort of a post-scarcity future and they're creating a utopian post-war society um, and so it has a sort of specific role within I think the, the film industry at the time. With the advent of television there was a clear front runner when it came to depicting a utopian vision of the future. Star Trek which first aired in 1966 three years before the first moon landing. Star Trek in the 1960s was quite utopian in the sense that it projects the future where we've got rid of certain problems and and things that are plaguing contemporary society and ended up presenting something that was really quite progressive. In Star Trek, everyone on Earth is living at peace under the benevolent control of a political organisation called the Federation. They're the guys who boldly go where no man has gone before. Bad things do happen, but the Starship Enterprise is always on hand to help put the universe to rights. Amy says that one of her favourite episodes from the original 1960s series is called Omega Glory. They go to a, a planet that has two warring tribes um, that are meant to represent um, the Americans and those against them. Uh, they're called the Coms and the Yangs. And the Coms are representative of communist powers during the Cold War and the Yangs are the Yanks, the Americans. And you get these two warring sides, almost like a projected future of what would happen if the Cold War kept going. And they've got to a point where they've forgotten what they're fighting about. They've become more primitive in this ongoing fight. And the Enterprise goes in and is able to sort of help to uh, resolve some of the issues and and are there as this sort of like future alternative to that ongoing war, that ideological war um, that isn't necessarily going to be easily resolved. So you get sort of quite interesting and quite um, prescient uh, allegories and narratives in the 1960s. It was incredibly political. But sci-fi on screen was by no means all utopian. And there were some really dark predictions going on at the same time in the 1970s. Planet of the Apes, for example, where the future of humanity is, well, not rosy. And Blade Runner, a future in which robots and humans are living in a violent, grimy version of Los Angeles in 2019, where the sun rarely shines. More recent films like The Hunger Games, in which children are forced to kill each other as part of a giant political game, have continued the dystopian genre. Today... Amy says that a lot of sci-fi is focused around artificial intelligence, or AI, exploring what could happen if robots shift from being automatons to machines with consciousness. She points to recent TV series like Westworld and Humans. You've also had um, films like Ex Machina, which did well critically, but also introduces these ideas of a conscious AI and the sort of ethics of having a creation that can think for itself. So you get this sort of uh, utopian ideal of creating a future with the support of AI of sort of advancing that technology but then thinking about the possible um, apocalyptic outputs from that so it's something that starts off as a utopian idea and and becomes quite dystopian as we realise that we might actually be replaced by (laughs) AI. While blockbuster fantasy sci-fi films such as Star Wars have of course continued to make millions at the box office there have been a flurry of recent television series based in the near future much closer to our own reality. You can do a lot with thinking about small time jumps, and that's what I think is quite interesting about this idea of the future, is that 
it has quite a long spectrum. So the future for someone perhaps in the early 20th century is going to be very different than my idea of the future. Most of the extreme dystopias and utopias predicted in science fiction haven't come to pass, for the time being. But when it comes to what we imagine when we imagine the future, historical designs have a habit of sticking, as Nick Dunn explains. It's certainly the case that you know speculative visions of future cities do shape what's happening uh, in reality. And But the interesting thing about that is that whilst we're generally good at understanding what may happen, we're less accurate in terms of where it happens. So, for example, you know, in 1908, uh, 1910s, so early 20th century, quite a lot of depictions for the future of Manhattan, which were sort of showing it with uh, lots of different layers of, of infrastructure. So roads, railways, you know, walkways, all elevated up and into different sort of strata across the city. So you had these different ribbons of, of flows of people and goods and vehicles moving moving around. And whilst Manhattan did have an elevated train for a while, and obviously it has its subway, it's never developed that kind of transportation system. So that never arrived in North America in quite the same way. But it has emerged, you know, throughout the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and beyond in Asian cities like Hong Kong and Singapore. So you tend to see that these things have happened, but they just happen elsewhere. So while we've been good at imagining what's possible in the future, these kind of predictions are rarely spot on. More broadly, this this tends to be our relationship with the future. We're, we're pretty good at, at working out what's going to be important, but just not necessarily why. I mean, we knew that outer space was going to be really important, but it's turned out that it was important because of things like global positioning satellites, maybe for surveillance and spying, not for colonising, certainly not yet anyway. So... The interesting thing about faction fiction is they're constantly in this dialogue throughout history and sometimes the paths kind of weave over each other and then feed back. And you get these echoes over time of different ideas uh, emerging, but then also the same idea sort of um, rising in popularity and then disappearing again. So they kind of move over time, which is what makes the ideas of the future so fascinating. Gemma Weather. Since recording that, Amy Chambers has moved to Manchester Metropolitan University, where she's a senior lecturer in film studies. From science fiction imaginings of the past, we turn to a present-day futurist. Yes, there are academics out there who research the future. To find out more, my colleague Will Defratis spoke to Anders Sandberg, from Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute. I asked Anders Sandberg, the Oxford University futurist, how he goes about his work. So one approach is, of course, to look at what's scientifically possible in the lab today and assume that in a few years it's going to be outside the lab, used in society, and then start talking about the social consequences of that. And that leads to building scenarios. And if you're really sophisticated, you soon realize, oh, it's not so much the technology that matters as, oh, how people react to it, what culture you build on it. 
Another approach for the people who are more statistical and mathematically minded is, of course, to try to make forecasts. You get data, you try to extrapolate uh, how much production or speed or uh, industry is going to be in the future using various mathematical methods. The problem is, of course, many of them don't work very well at all, but people actually do keep on using them. Because one of the biggest problems with future studies is that many people like to think that they care about the future, but they mostly want a bit of entertainment and look a bit wise. So there are many methods that uh, don't really have a good track record, but people keep on using them because they want to tell a good story about the future. There's a lot of dodgy futurology out there then, but Anders says space exploration is one area where the predictions really did come to life. The space moment was started by people predicting that, yes, you can build spacecraft that can actually bring us into orbit and to the other planets. And if you look back at the work of the British Interplanetary Society, they did an amazingly detailed plan for how you could put a man on the moon and bring him back again. And this was in 1939. Now, the interesting part here is that they got practically all the science right. But they couldn't predict the political realities that led to humans going to the moon and then going back and not colonizing anymore. That was a total failure. But actually, the engineering part of the early space program was predicted perfectly well. So these visionaries got the technology right, but no one foresaw how the Cold War would really drive the space race. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Just as we're able to predict what cities in the future might look like, but not which actual cities will become the most advanced, we're often able to predict future technologies, but not the social environment in which they can be developed. There are real limits on what you can predict using data. Uh, One of the problems is that Although you can extrapolate trends mathematically and it looks very nice on your computer screen, that presupposes that the conditions that are driving these trends remain the same. So if you don't uh, take into account that the underlying rules can change, then uh, indeed your predictions can be very seriously wrong. Just look at social media. As recently as the late 90s or early 2000s, sci-fi could imagine a world of rocket ships, but no smartphones or Facebook. Today, one of the biggest drivers of innovation is the urge to profit from our social relationships. So the interesting thing about the inability of science fiction to do a good prediction of the appearance of social media uh, is that it should in some sense have been totally obvious that something like that was important. Because we are social beings, we love communicating, we do it all day. So obviously a technology that could uh, do that better for us would be a big deal and would indeed change society. But the problem in predicting technologies like that is that it's very obvious in retrospect, but it's very hard to predict an idea before you have it. With social media, futurists weren't surprised by the technology itself. After all, there's nothing too groundbreaking about a well-designed app or algorithm. What was surprising was how social media came to be used. We can't predict that beforehand because it's something we put in as users. Twitter doesn't have a meaning without what meanings the users put in. So the problem for the futurist is predicting anything that has this enormous idea, culture component, is that it's going to be fundamentally unpredictable. These social trends are hard to predict, as are many natural events. Some, like an asteroid impact, can be totally random. Others are almost impossible to predict accurately. Like, for instance, what the weather will be like on a particular day many months from now. So how does a futurist account for such uncertainty? 
one of the ways of dealing with all this is to take a bit more philosophical standpoint, take a step back and instead of uh, looking at too much data, too much number and trying to figure out where the flying cars are, think about what do people want? What are the overall patterns of history? And if history doesn't repeat itself but rhymes, what things might rhyme with the current situation? Have you seen something like this before? What would be similar and different? And can we actually make a judgment on uh, what is likely to happen? I asked Anders how you would apply this sort of thinking to the year 2100. So when looking at uh, some relatively mid-term future like uh, 2100, it wouldn't surprise me that uh, you would recognize a lot of government institutions, even though their meanings might have shifted quite tremendously. The problem is, of course, the underlying culture and social assumptions might have changed enormously. He illustrates this point with a nice thought experiment. Uh, I like to point out that a time traveller going from 1900 to 1950 uh, would be astounded by the technological advances, but it would feel quite at home with the social structures. A time traveller from 1950 going to the year 2000 uh, would not be terribly impressed by the technology change. There are still the cars and the TV is in color, but that's not too impressive. But the social changes, the role of women and uh, homosexuals, uh, globalization, would have been enormous and shocking to him. So the 2100 is very hard to predict in uh, detail, and especially in terms of how it actually would work. But we can look at abstractions. And generally, when you want to go further out in the future, it's better to look at humanity on a rather high abstract level. So we can say that historically, we have grown richer and richer at an exponential rate of about 2% per year for the past 2,000 years. So are these long-term trends good news? Unless something very dramatic happens, we should expect that. We have grown in knowledge, etc. So we should expect this future to be much richer much healthier and have a lot more knowledge than we do. So you get a lot of possibilities here. But it's better to look at it on a fairly abstract level rather than what political party is going to rule the US in uh, 100 years' time. Anders uses the same method to peer into the really far future. At this point, we can't say very much about what advanced humans or alien civilization are doing. But we still know that the laws of physics are constraining them. So I can uh, use physics to say that in a trillion years, uh, the background temperature of the universe is going to be at a certain level. And this has actually some implication for what kind of computing you can do. So assuming civilizations want to do computations, which I think underlies actually thinking of all kinds, then you can actually start pointing out some of the constraints of what civilizations in a trillion years will be doing. Although we have no clue what we will be thinking about, what we care about, we can still say how much thinking we can do and what we need to do in order to achieve that. This is the mind-blowing idea that the universe is so vast that somewhere out there a civilization will be pushing at the limits of what's physically possible. That is what life and intelligence generally tend to do. Uh, life tends to evolve and try to find ways into new ecological niches. Sometimes it takes a long while, but uh, generally evolution is pretty good at searching through solutions. Intelligence is even better. We can come up with ways of jumping uh, gaps that evolution, which is pretty short-sighted, can't do. It's a pretty likely prediction that in the long run, all technological possible things will be doable. So to assess the far future, people like Anders view the entirety of human civilization simply as a species filling an ecological niche and eventually exploring the physical possibilities of the universe. 
But when your day job involves this sort of incredibly zoomed out thinking, do you stop caring about day to day news? I asked Anders whether futurists still worry about who is in the White House or whether a country leaves the EU. Some politics do matter. The Cold War brought humanity closer to extinction than anything before. So certainly political events have very big effects. And uh, individual politicians might have less effect than they like to think. Uh, but you do see uh, big trends and sometimes individuals can uh, cause and stop uh, or stop them. And so the historian David Christian, who's a big proponent of what he calls big history, once had a very nice analogy. On the small scale, history is like quantum mechanics. It's a lot of random things, individuals doing this and that uh, and things just happening. On the large scales, it moves over like to classical mechanics. And just like when you zoom out from the atom scale towards molecules and larger things, things become more regular. For Anders, Trump or Brexit or Syria are small-scale history. They're chaotic and unpredictable. For him, new technologies are more important because they will be around forever as part of this regular progression of a larger-scale history. One example of new technology comes from Go, an incredibly complex board game played in East Asia. Last year, for the first time, a computer beat the best human at Go, many years ahead of schedule. Anders was excited. When AlphaGo won uh, against humans, that was another demonstration that machine learning is here to stay and is getting very, very powerful. And that's going to be an influence that is going to be around all the time. Whatever we do about globalization or the European Union, that is a relatively local thing. Politics in 2017 may seem a bit scary, but this can be balanced out by progress in other areas. Here's the futurist case for being optimistic. I think it's useful sometimes when you the news is getting you down to realize that actually things could be way worse. They have been worse historically. If we think about our current problems, they're nothing compared to how it was to live during the Black Plague or the Thirty Years' War. And actually, quite a lot of trends are going in the right direction. Now, it might be, of course, that social media or artificial intelligence or something else completely changes the rules for how our society and civilization works, and maybe even in a darker direction. But that is something we can investigate. We can actually make scenarios of what can go wrong, and then we can start thinking about how do we fix that before it happens. And just how wrong could things go? If you're interested in hearing more from Anders, you can check out an article he wrote for The Conversation outlining the five biggest threats to human existence on our website, theconversation.com. Here you can also find more interesting stories from academic experts. That's it for this episode of The Anthill. We'll be back next month with our brand new series, The Battle for India's Future. If you'd like to get in touch with any feedback or ideas for shows relating to India or anything else you want to hear about, you can always email us on podcast at theconversation.com or follow us on social media and get in touch there. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. The Anthill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.